So welcome to Element. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion. You can click on Live. It'll it'll say Element. But apparently there's another one on there too now. It says Lifeway or something. But you look at it, it says Text Coming or something. So there's nothing in it. Bah! Booyah! We're better. So, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just if you're new, welcome. Whoops. Okay. <laughs> download the app. You can get the sermon notes on there this morning if you want them. There's also Bibles in the back if you are new and you don't own a Bible. Uh, you can have one. If you forgot one, you want to use one, you can grab one and use one. There's also the hard copies of sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room that you can use as well. All right, so next week, I know, I know the whole Esther thing, it's like every few weeks I've been gone during it. Like I go to Haiti, sometimes I just disappear. Not like I've been on a bender or anything, but you know, I just kind of disappear somewhere. <laughs> next week, I'm actually going to be gone as, as well. And what's happening is when, when I, I was 18 years old, I'm playing water polo. And I, I shot this ball. This guy went up to block it, smacked me, and it broke my nose in the pool. So I got pulled out of the pool. And it takes like, you know, four or five weeks for your nose to actually feel better when that happens. Well, so all these years, my nose has been crooked. See? We don't put the light straight on because it's like, bing, you know. Like Owen Wilson or something. So apparently, up, up in my nasal cavity, my cartilage has uh, kept continuing growing up here. And I can't breathe out of the left side of my nose. So tomorrow, I go in. They're going to like cut it, straighten it, fix it, pack five feet of gauze in there, whatever they do, and I'm not allowed to talk for like seven to ten days. <laughs> You're not my wife. You don't get to clap. <laughs> so it's going to be great. And apparently if I do talk, it's going to be like, I should. anyway, so I'm not an animal. I'm a man. Wow, some of you actually have seen an old movie. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, so next week I won't be here. Uh, it'll be great for you. Uh, baptisms. We're doing baptisms November 21st. We were going to try and do them November 7th, but uh, unfortunately James is getting married. So he, will be, so he will be on a honeymoon, and we've got some high schoolers who want to get baptized, so we want to make sure that we do the baptisms when he can get back. So it's going to be hitting the cold season it's all his fault. So if we're there, we're doing baptisms, and you're all there going, yay, we should have made soup because it's cold. Just blame James. It's his fault. If you want to get baptized, you can sign up in the back. It's a sheet. We'll give you a call, tell you the stuff we need from you, and we will baptize you. November 21st. And I think that's it for my little thingies. Once you guys stand with me, you're reading God's Word. We'll get going. This is 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, and it says, Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of his wonderful acts. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would be those who, who tell of the wonderful acts that you have done in our lives and also the acts of the wonderful things you have done throughout Scripture in stories like Esther where you come and you save the day because you are a God who cares for your children. Have us live that way as a God who has redeemed us and, and live the story that you have placed in our lives. Amen. Have a seat. So this is sort of the last week of Esther. Eric's going to do something next week, but then kind of tied into Esther just a tiny bit. So in essence, this is the last week of Esther. Hope you enjoyed it. Some people didn't. Oh, well, sorry for you. You know, actually, don't feel sorry for you. Whatever. Uh, Esther, I'm going to try and bring it all together today, all that we've talked about, see how this works. Esther is a story of man's craziness and God's faithfulness. But in the end, it all comes back to this idea of story, of story. If you asked Esther and Mordecai in the middle of their story, they'd be freaking out. What is God doing? We're all going to die. Oh, my goodness. And yet God, in his providential care, comes and he brings everything to fruition. 
Now, Esther, uh, if you weren't here for any of it, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Esther is a story of a young Jew uh, named Esther who finds herself queen in Persia. One of the king's officials, a guy named Haman, writes a decree to kill all the Jews because Esther, uh, Esther's uncle Mordecai offended him. So Mordecai comes to Queen Esther and says, do something. And Esther doesn't have a whole lot of power as a queen. She's just kind of a symbol. But she does try and do something. And she eventually gets the man who wrote the decree to kill all the Jews killed. And now new decrees get written that the Jews can defend themselves, and that's the book. I know you're thinking, what, 15 weeks, really? You could have just done that? Yeah, <laughs> great. Uh, there are some shining moments of humanity throughout the book of Esther, but there are also places where everybody just looks bad, except for God, who brings his providence to bear and again saves the day and comes through. Now, chapter 10, it is like the end of a movie. The credits have rolled, and we sat there, and we thought, is there going to be something at the end of Iron Man 2? So we sat there and we wait till the end of the movie to see if there's something else. We've been hoping and waiting, and our patience has paid off because there is actually something. There's a tad more. That's chapter 10. It's like an epilogue. Some commentators find chapter 10 out of place. There's a Greek text called the Alpha Text, and they take chapter 10 out completely. But other people see it like a coda, like in a song. You get to the end, it says coda. It refers you back to something else within the song. And you go, oh, I sing the chorus again, or this makes a little more sense because of the coda. So what this coda does, chapter 10, is it refers you back to what everything that happened in the book. Esther 1.1 starts with, this is what happened during the time of King Xerxes. Chapter 10 comes in and says, now this is what is happening. Esther chapter 10, verse 1. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. This is mainland to the islands. What's he doing now? He's raising taxes. Welcome to America and Persia. Verse 2, and all his acts of power and might, together with the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him, and these are words originally used of Haman, now they're used of Mordecai, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes. This actually echoes Genesis 41, like another coda. Like Joseph in Genesis 41 rides second in command to Pharaoh in a chariot in Egypt. And so the same thing happens kind of to Mordecai, he's second in command, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Now the word good that it uses here that Mordecai did, it's the word tov or, or tov. It's like I have ten toes, but you have a fat lip. So you say I have ten tobes. Okay, maybe not you. It's how I will say it next week when I got my face all packed. With stuff. The word, what it refers to is every, that's everything that's good in the broadest sense possible. It is that which is beautiful, that which is attractive, that which is majestic, that which is useful, that which is profitable, that which is morally right. All of these things are tov. In the end, Mordecai had his faults, but he worked for what was right. Mordecai's story, Esther's story, like we talked about the second week of the series, Everything brought them to this place at this time. All the trial, all the pain, all the hardship made them the centerpiece of one of the most loved stories ever written. It's inspiring, which make us ask a question at the end of Esther. What type of story do you live in? What type of story do you live in? What is your life being written by? We are in a story. Our lives can be told as narrative by all the things that we do. But are our lives something that would inspire us? Real stories, they involve conflict and resolution and overcoming obstacles. We hate stories and or reading books or watching movies where it's all about mediocrity, where there's no point in the end of it. Movies that have no character you root for are terrible. 
Now, Donald Miller uh, wrote a book recently, and it's all about story. And he writes this thing in the book that I want to read to you. He says, if you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and worked for years to get it, you wouldn't cry at the end when he drove off the lot testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends you saw a beautiful movie or go home and put a record on to think about the story you'd seen. The truth is, you wouldn't remember that movie a week later, except you feel robbed and want your money back. Nobody cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a Volvo. But we spend years actually living those stories and expect our lives to feel meaningful. The truth is, if what we choose to do with our lives won't make a story meaningful, it won't make life meaningful either. True. In order for a human story, a human life, to have any meaning, the first thing you need is Jesus, because Jesus gives us meaning. But you also need some other things. You also need a lead character. You've got to have a lead character, a body, somebody for something to happen to. Esther, Mordecai, you. How wonderful is that? You need an ambition. If the character doesn't want anything, you'll get really bored with the story. They were to save the Jews. God has called you to mission. To mission. What is that mission he has placed you upon? The story needs conflict. The story needs hard times. If there is no pressure, a character will not change and grow. Joy and comfort are great, but they do not change us. We all want it, but it doesn't change us. Conflict is what changes us. Hard times and trials is what changes us. And then you need resolution. It has to come to some sort of closure with the story. Now, story is very powerful, and it's one of the ways we learn most of what we know. Scripture, the Scripture's beginning to end is narrative after narrative after narrative. When God finishes one story, He picks up another story. When He's done with that, He picks up another one. All the way into the New Testament, Jesus shows up, and He starts to teach in parables. And these are stories where they have a point and they make sense. The New Testament writers all have for their backdrop stories of the interconnectedness of people and what is going on. If you have a Bible, open to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. As they write these stories, they, they have these ideas of their view of God, redemption, and of hope. So in James chapter 1, James starts to write some of these things about what's going on in these people's lives. See if you can hear under the subtext of what's being said some interpersonal Stories. James chapter 1, verse 2 says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Think there's a subtext there? Why is he writing this? Because there's trials going on. And then he says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So what's that trial? Their faith is being tested. Perseverance must finish its works so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. These words are loaded with interpersonal stories. They're loaded with things that are going on. James talks about, uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, about a church favoring the rich and ignoring the poor. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Do you see under the subtext a narrative that is happening in people's lives? Do you see that? Everything is written in the sense of story. We are a people of the scriptures. We find meaning in the story. God doesn't hide your happiness in a riddle. It's not like I've heard some people, some preachers are like, oh, it's like the story of David and Goliath. It's all about the American dream. David picks up five stones to go slay the giant. Those five stones are like faith, hope, love, tithe, tithe more. You know, those are the five stones that are there. You can slay the Goliath that stands against you. That's crazy talk because maybe the five stones David threw were just maybe five stones. Could they be? If God wanted you to know if the stones were something else, He would have told you. He would have told you the story is powerful enough. God's story is like a compass that shows us what is good, what is bad, what is life, and what is death, what is worth pursuing, and what is not. 
Jesus tells story after story. Scripture all points to Jesus. It is his story. It's all about Jesus. There's a guy named Robert McKee. And Robert McKee is not a Christian, but he leads seminars on story. He is considered the preeminent person on how you write story. And in his book, creatively titled Story, uh, he writes this. He said, The storyteller's selection and arrangement of events is his master metaphor for the interconnectedness of all the levels of reality, personal, political, environmental, spiritual, stripped of its surface of characterization and location, story structure reveals his personal cosmology. It means how he sees the world. His insight in the deepest patterns and motivation of how and why things happen in this life. It is his map of life's hidden order. He's saying a storyteller is creating a map for you. You know what scripture is? It is God's map that points you to Jesus. X marks the spot, Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. Now, have you ever seen a good movie where you walk out of it and you think about it for like weeks later? I gotta buy that. The movie was so good. And you start, and maybe there's some things in the movie that make you start thinking, well, I, I need to learn Kung Fu. Or, you know, I need to, I need to learn how to, I saw a Rocky. I need to learn how to box. I'm gonna buy me some slabs of meat and hang them in the backyard and beat up on the, you know, some, because the story does, it starts to adjust a compass in our brain. It makes us start to think differently than we did before. And so the question comes down to whose story are we letting adjust our compass? Are you letting the Kardashians? Adjust your compass. Wow. Okay. Great. American Idol. Oh, I can. I can be just like that. I can. Or do you let the rich, great heritage of Scripture adjust the compass? I mean, you have this story of Esther and Haman and Mordecai and Xerxes, but Esther ends talking about Mordecai, not about Esther. And I think it's because every single com- Hebrew commentary I read, and every and some a lot of the Christian ones as well, show a striking resemblance between Joseph and Mordecai in, in the book of Genesis. Joseph is a guy. He becomes one of the most powerful Jews in a foreign land. The same thing happens to Mordecai. Even in chapter 10 of Esther, it shows that Xerxes becomes more and more wealthy because of a Hebrew he places in power. The same thing happens to Pharaoh. Now, Joseph's story, if you want to look at story, is simply amazing. Genesis takes a whole chunk of the book, and it talks about this guy. Moses must really like him, because Adam and Eve, they get like a chapter. And this guy just goes on and on and on all about Joseph. But he has the rules that make a good story. He starts off as a cocky teenager, thinks he's got it all together. God comes to him in a dream and says, your brothers are going to bow down to you. So he goes and tells them that, which you just don't do. Genesis 37, verse 9. Then he has another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon, that's his parents, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. It's like everybody bows down to me, and that's so great. And so his brothers go, yeah, and they throw him in a well because that's what we would do if we had a younger brother who did this to us. In the well you go. Now this is considered a negative turn in the story. You know, he's in a well. A well's not a good place to be. But then he gets fished out of a well. That's a positive turn in the story. Yay, he's out of the well. But then he gets sold into slavery by his brothers. You know, that's a negative turn in the story. But he goes to a guy's house named Potiphar. Potiphar is very close to Pharaoh. This is a positive turn in the story because, hey, he's getting kind of close to power. This thing could actually happen. Now, Potiphar's wife has certain uh, pent-up romantic urges. She's, we'll call her a cougar. <laughs> that's, that, that's Pharaoh's wife. Because here's the problem. Genesis 39, verse 6 says, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. It's like, oh, that's going to be a positive turn in the story. No, for Joseph, it's a negative. You know, some of us you know, wish, wish we were handsome. The downside, when you're really hot, apparently people want you naked. And, and that sometimes can be bad. The advantage of the middle-aged bald plumber is everybody wants you to keep your clothes on. See, so... Joseph is the only guy in Scripture that says he was well-built and handsome. So he's the hottest dude in the Bible. Joseph. Guys, we hate this guy. 
he's got like six pack abs and we got like the cooler you know he's got, he's got guns and we got like pea shooters I got pea shooters I'm like he's like bang and I'm like pew 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 so I get but you think he's really, he's really hot so this would be a good thing but it's a negative thing because it says after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said come to bed with me Depending on what story you're telling, this could be like, hey, positive. No, it's a negative turn in the story. It's a negative turn in the story. And so she grabs him. He says no. And he runs out the door and she holds on to his coat. And she says, he came in here and tried to rape me. So he goes to jail. Negative turn in the story. Going to jail for rape. Conflict. Conflict. Joseph spends years in jail. Eventually, Pharaoh's baker gets thrown into jail. We don't know why. And then his cupbearer gets thrown into jail. Because apparently they had cupbearers back then. Apparently a king didn't want to carry his own cup and you're probably just walking around holding the cup and you're like, well, I don't want to drink anything now, but I want to drink something later. I ought to hire somebody to carry this cup for me. So, <laughs> so he, gets a, he gets a cup bearer. And so these guys have some dreams while they're in prison. Joseph interprets these dreams and he says to the cup bearer, you're going to get your job back. Apparently the king is bored of carrying his own cup, so he wants you to come carry his cup. And the bakery says, oh, your dream, you're going to die. It's like if you come to me and you say, I had a nightmare. And I'm like, oh, dude, you're going to die. <laughs> One, two, Jesus coming for you. So, so the cupbearer gets his job back. That's like a totally positive turn in the story. But, but then he forgets about Joseph. Negative turn in the story. Joseph sits in jail for years after this. Years. He, he probably doubts God. He probably doubts God's plan, just like Esther and Mordecai might have. And then one day Pharaoh has a dream. No one can interpret this dream. And the cupbearer says, oh, I know a guy. Silly me, I forgot for seven years. You know, and so Pharaoh says, go get that guy. That's the, so Joseph comes in and he tells Pharaoh, okay, this is what your dream means. You're going to have seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And this is what I would do. I would store up a whole bunch of wheat. And when famine comes, people are going to want to buy the wheat. They won't have any money. So you can buy their farms and you can own everything. And Pharaoh says, that's a good plan. Hire that guy. And so they hire Joseph. becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. Now, you think, great, positive turn in the story. But there's also a negative in this. Joseph is a Jew, second most powerful man in the country, and Egyptians will not eat with him. They will not eat at his table. He actually has servants who eat at separate tables because they can't eat with Hebrews. It's a great story. Eventually, famine hits. His brothers come, do not know it's him. They bow down before him, trying to get some food, and God brings the story to fruition. God is a great writer of story. He is And we too are in a story. We have negative and positive turns. And how we deal with the conflict many times will determine who we will become. Do you trust Jesus with the story of your life through all the negative turns? Or do you try and grab onto it with your own hands and say, no, this is how it must be done? So I'm going to try and relate this to you in story terms as best as possible. In a story, one of the things you need is, like I said, a lead character. Studies have been done by people who go and read books and watch movies about what a lead character can and cannot do. Because a lead character cannot do certain things that the audience won't like them. Anybody seen the newest Rocky movie? It's like Rocky 20 or something? Okay. If you haven't, you should, you should watch it. You should watch like the first uh, 45 minutes of this movie because it's really amazing what they do. They take the first 45 minutes to get you to like Rocky. He feeds homeless guys, so he's charitable. He tells people stories. He befriends a single mom, not to sleep with her, but just to be her friend. He walks her home one night. Her light bulbs burn out on her porch, and so he comes back the next day, and he changes her light bulb. She's a single mom, so she has a kid, so Rocky tries to mentor the kid, all as he grieves the loss of his own wife. There's a scene where Rocky's mentoring this kid, and they go down over to the animal shelter to get a dog, and they don't just get any dog. They get the ugliest dog they can find. All in a movie about boxing. About boxing. 
And you know, why do you take 45 minutes to, to make you like a 300 pound boxer? Because if you don't like him at the end of the movie when he wins, nobody cares. But because you do like him, we want him to win. Joseph is a great protagonist. You know, he starts off as a cocky kid, but he doesn't give up. He moves forward, believes in God. And this is how every character in Scripture is. It shows that everybody is evil. We all start off following our own way. You see, Esther lies. Mordecai encourages her to lie. The Jews seek excessive vengeance. And we think, oh, it's okay for the bad guys to act that way, but not the godly people. Yet Scripture shows you there are no godly people. There is God, and then there is people. That's how it works. Commentators are constantly even trying to clean up the text in Esther. When, when Esther had to go and spend one night with the king, they go, oh, but Esther kept her purity. No, she didn't. If she did, she would have been killed. Oh, Mordecai, he was such a godly man. No, he wasn't. He refuses to humble himself enough to bow down to a guy he should have bowed down to because it was custom. He won't do it and it causes all this crazy stuff that takes place. On and on it goes. And I think we do, we do this because we want people to get it right. We want to have people to look to. But I'll tell you, the decisions in your life matter. There's a fine line between hero and villain. And, I'll t and again, these studies have shown that a hero in our minds can be depressed, have a drinking problem, a hero can even smell bad. But a hero cannot think of themselves better than other people. The second a hero places himself above other people, he becomes the villain. And you know what? We have all placed ourselves above God in our lives. We know what God clearly has called us to, and yet we say, I am going to do this instead because I like this better. I want this more. I don't trust what God is going to do. We have all done that. You know what that makes us? The villain. We all have become the villain. Romans 12.3, Paul says, For the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Dozens of times throughout Scripture, this is repeated over and over and over. We should be a humble people. And because God loves good story, He wants us to be part of His story. But we get caught up in our own bad stories every single day. Think about this, about, you know, hero and villain. Think of the way you talk to your wife or your husband or your kids or your neighbors or your coworkers or your clients. Think about that or how you talk about them. If they were making a movie... Uh, about you and, and you were the lead character and the lead character treated their husband and wife or kids or neighbors or clients or coworkers the way you treat those around you. Would that be a good or a bad character? If it's a bad character in life, it's a bad character. Uh, if it's a bad character in the movie, it's a bad character in life. Philippians 2, 3-8 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." This is the example that the God of all creation sets for his people. Humility. The best character of all time is the most humble. God sets the compass for his people in humility. Because I believe God wants us to live better stories with our lives. Because when we surrender them to him, they are his lives. So you need a lead character. You. Second thing is a character needs ambition. He needs ambition, he or she. So ambition is not, oh, I want stuff. But we want things that actually matter. In the end, Esther and Mordecai wanted to save the Jews. That's a good ambition. 
It's not, oh, I want to get a Volvo. That's not compelling. Again, a movie about a guy buying a Volvo, driving out the lot, helping the salesman get his commission check is not compelling. The best stories, they're the ones where you might die or be rejected or you're terrified or you might be ridiculed. Nothing is compelling about safety. Nothing. If the lead character gets hit by a bus, what dreams die when they die? You know, what, what doesn't happen because they're no longer around? That's the question for a good story. We are people called to live a good story, but we're paralyzed because we want comfort so badly. Esther started in comfort. She's a pampered beauty queen until Morstakai showed up and said, you know what, this is not what you're made for. You are here for something different. You're here to save the Jews. It's, it's for you and I, it's as if our freedom has paralyzed us. Because we always say, oh, we want God to give us freedom, but we really don't. We want God to give us the five things we have to do. You mean the one, I'll do these five things and I'll go do whatever else I want to do and seek my own comfort. And I'll do those five things. But that's not who God is. God comes and He gives us great freedom. And He says, be creative. Run with your dream. Glorify me. Live in my strength. Make a great story. And that is scary and dangerous. You might say, I want my kids to love God and love me. Great, great story. How do you do it? How do you inspire them? What do you show them? What do you take them to do so they understand this? You may say, I want my life to know my wife to know the love of Jesus by how I love her. Great story. How do you live that? How do you inspire that? Because when you get this, this great ambition, the first thing you're going to experience in that is fear. Oh, what if I'm ridiculed? What if I'm rejected? Oh, I can't live this way. What, what, what's, what's really going to happen? You know, the best way to root out fear in your life is not to want anything. Just don't eat anything at all. Stay in front of the TV. Don't watch scary movies. Eat your food that ends in Eto's. You know? but, <laughs> but that's a boring story. Good stories deal with fear. And we realize at some point we're all going to be scared. But good stories involve Jesus because His perfect love casts out all fear. I have heard too many Christians over and over say, Oh, we're going to do this thing, but God closed the door. Sometimes God closes the door because He wants you to knock it down and work through fear. Mordecai, he is hated by the king's close advisor. The Jews are set for slaughter. Esther doesn't have the authority to do anything. It'd be safer to run and hide. But they don't. Again, James, what was it? James 1, 2, 3, 4. I read it to you earlier. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You may say, well, what am I doing wrong? Why am I struggling so hard? It may be you're facing trials because God wants you to grow into a better story. And you go through hard things. Lead character, ambition, then the story comes to a resolution. A resolution. Resolution is not about everything working out okay. It's like, oh, bing, 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 22 minutes later, my sit comes over and everybody's happy. That's not how it always works. Uh, There's a movie a while ago called Friday Night Lights. They made a, a high school teenage drama of the TV thing, same thing. But they had this movie. And it's about a high school football team from Odessa, Texas. They overcome all sorts of obstacles to make it to the state championships. So at the end of the movie, they're at the state championship, and there's like two seconds left on the clock, there's like two yards to the goal, and it's their ball, and they, and they hike it, and the clock counts down, and goes off, so this is the last play. You know what happens? They lose. They lose. True story, true story. The very next year, they go back, and they actually won the state championship, but when they were starting to make the movie, they found out everybody tried harder, wanted it more, there was more sacrifice in the year that they actually lost. So they made it about that year. The way to guarantee a great story is that we lay everything down for the mission of the story. I believe there's a problem in our culture that there's hardly any good stories coming out anymore. Almost every movie is terrible. Everything stinks. And I think it's because our lives are not as good as they used to be. We are so 
consumed with our own comfort, even Christians. We are so consumed with our own comfort and not the glory of God that we stop living good stories. Again, Robert McKee, uh, agnostic, doesn't have much faith at all. He writes this in his book. He says, The final cause of the decline of story runs very deep. Values, the positive and negative charges of life. This would be like the positive and negative turns of Joseph. Are hinged on the fact of good ambition. Without good ambition, there are no morals. It's like we don't care about anything. Our values decline and our stories become affected by it. He says, ours has become an age of moral and ethical relativism, subjectivism, and great confusion of values. As the family disintegrates and sexual antagonism rise, who, for example, feels he understands the nature of love? And how, if you do have a conviction, do you express it to an ever more skeptical audience? The erosion of values has brought a corresponding erosion of story. This agnostic sounds like a preacher. It's amazing. Because we have lost our values, we've lost our story. When the knight in shining armor doesn't shine anymore because the princess should save herself and make her own money and raise her own kids and be independent, the story falls apart. It's why we take these stories of Scripture and allow them to set the moral compass for our hearts. We lay down everything at the feet of Christ and we live by that compass. We live the stories He calls us to live. And when someone does something crazy or invites you to participate them in some sin, you're able to say, no, I don't like this. Will, where this will end me up. This is not the story I want. Joseph in Potiphar's house flees so he doesn't sin. Esther takes a stand to save the Jews. Mordecai doesn't flee but stands next to Esther, supporting and helping her. But they all started in a place of failure and sin, just like we all do. But God starts where we fall. We surrender our lives to Christ. You, he has the pen already. And you allow Him to write the story for your life. Now, many books and TV shows and movies, they start with like a chromatic scene. It's like, dun, dun, dun. They show this thing and then it fades to black and says, you know, five hours earlier, or, you know, ten years earlier, or like me, you know, 40 years earlier. You know, this, this kind of, that kind of thing. All the pages of Scripture, there's a great climax in Matthew 20, 25, 21, God says to those who love him, well done, good and faithful servant. That is our climactic scene. We trust Christ for our strength, our salvation, but there's great creativity and freedom in how you get there. What you wear, who you marry, how much risk you take. I mean, do you really want to get there you know, in the spiritual Volvo? Do you want to get there with safe, good gas mileage? Because I will tell you, it's not life that stinks and is boring. It's you that stinks and is boring. You are not living a great story. We're not. Life is not meaningless. It is exciting because it is building towards a climax. God has a great story. All throughout Scripture, God constantly tells His people to tell the story, not only what He's doing in you, but what He has done. He says, tell the story. First Chronicles 16.9, Psalm 91, 71.24, 73.28, 75.1, 105.2, 107.22, 145.4-11, Isaiah 63.7. It goes on and on and on. And says, tell the story. Why? So we don't forget what we're called to. We don't forget what God has done in us. We share that with other people and share what He has done in history. It's all about Jesus. It is His call, His story, and what we do while in it. What will you do? What will you do? Will you live in fear or will you do something scary and begin to live this better story? I mean, the God of all creation has pursued you to love you and to call you into his story and to write that story with his pen. And will you stop seeking your own comfort and start seeking his glory? Because when you do, you will have positive and negative turns in your life. But it will be a great story because God is the writer of great stories. The question is, 
Are you going to surrender and let God write that story in your life? You know, we come to communion every single week because communion is a place where we remember a great story. Our God comes in human flesh, lives a life, dies for our sin, what separates us from God and each other, goes to, goes to this cross. He is, he is mutilated and brutalized and dies, and then rises from the dead for our redemption. What a story that the God of the entire universe would do this for a people that he pursues and loves. It's an amazing story. That's why every week we take that cracker and we break it like his body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we live the story. We remember the story that we were called to live as part of that story. The band's going to come up to do a couple songs. And these songs all have under the subtext the idea of story. What is God doing? And so we sing these songs and we, we surrender our lives to him. Thanks. We worship God through prayer. There'll be some uh, deacons and elders in the back. And if you're living your life, you think, I am not living a good story. I'm seeking myself. I'm trying to, I'm trying to find me a spiritual Volvo to get around in. <laughs> Go and pray with them. They'd love to, and if you feel weird about going to the back of, of the hallway, they'll hang out after service. They'll be up here. You can grab one of them and talk to them up here. God wants you to live a great story. We're going to worship God through uh, giving this offering box on the side wall and the back and we give because giving is part of our story. God loves us and giving is part of our worship. Uh, there's food and stuff in the back. We hid some so you guys will have some this week. <laughs> so there'll be some, be some food back there. Eat some food. Get to know some other people. Live the story. If you, if you have a small group of friends around you, maybe you go to lunch today, ask each other, you know, what, what story are you living? How, you know, what, what's going on with you? Are you living a great story? You know, what, what better story can we be living? Ask each other those questions, those hard questions. You know, God is a great writer of story. We, as a people, surrender our lives to Him, and He writes the best story we can imagine. And it may not always go exactly like you think. You know, you may end up in jail, like Joseph, being like, what is going on? I trusted God. Yes, you did. And you know what? God has something for a great culmination of the story, and that is well done, good and faithful servant. We are to be a people of the Scriptures living the story. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask that we would be those who understand that you are the author of the story and that we would place ourselves simply in your hands and that we would trust you for all that you are doing and all that you promised to do in our lives. I ask that for those of us in this room who are going through trials and hardships, that we would understand that that is not the end. They are making us into who you're calling us to be. And you are a God who has promised to walk with us through those trials and hardships, those negative turns of the story. And for those of us in this room who are seeking only comfort, I ask that you would shake us up so that we trust you more and more. And that's a scary thing because, God, you can shake things up pretty scarily. <laughs> Father, for those of us who are experiencing great positive turns in our stories, we want to thank you and praise you for that goodness. And we ask that no matter comes our way, we understand that you are the author of our lives and we surrender all to you. We ask that our lives would be lived in your strength in such a way that you are glorified and honored and your son is lifted up 
so that all men may know and live this story. Father, thank you for being so good, writing your name upon our hearts, for pursuing us and drawing us home. Thank you for being good. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.